So does everyone else die? Who's <laughs> <The best laughs> from the Biscuit Hammer? Yeah. Don't be spoilers. <laughs> We're not recording yet. Or I wouldn't put it in in the episode. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Manga in Your Ears. That music you just heard is from the wonderfully peppy and upbeat opening to the anime Gekkan Sojo Nozaki-kun, also known as uh, Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun here in English. We'll be talking about that manga in the second half of this episode, but first we're going to talk about the not recently completed, but still a little recent in the public mind, manga um, Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer by Satoshi... I just looked this up. <laughs> Satoshi Mizukami. Thank you, Satoshi Mizukami. Which was released by Seven Seeds in the U.S. in a series of omnibus volumes, and the entire series can be read for free on Crunchyroll. I don't remember off the top of my head if they have the same translation or not. I know I've checked it before, but I don't remember. I feel like maybe it wasn't in that case. I'm not entirely sure. I don't think it was, but... I don't think it would be. I think they have, like, separate things. Kogansha and Crunchyroll, I think, use the same translation sometimes, but I'm not really sure. Mm. Yeah, I think this was a bit of a separate case. But regardless, that means that this uh, manga is actually a lot easier to find and read than many of the others we talked about in the show, since if you have a Crunchyroll subscription, you can already read the entire manga for free. Yeah, well, for the subscription cost, but... It's in your subscription cost. I think Crunchyroll costs aren't that large. Yeah, seven bucks a month. Yeah. Uh, so, Loose from the Biscuit Hammer is one that took me a couple tries to get into before I really got going with it. It's the story of Earth, modern day, and we're following main character Amamiya Yuhi, who's kind of a nihilistic college student, and he wakes up one morning to find a lizard. And he is told that he's been chosen as his beast knight. He's going to protect this princess. And they're sort of from the future. They're trying to prevent like, the past from being destroyed. And Yuki is having none of this business and keeps trying to throw this lizard out his window, but it's not working at all. Yes. As it turns out, the lizard and uh, Amamiya have to be a certain distance close to each other. Otherwise, like bad things will happen. I haven't gotten that far yet, but maybe like one of them will die or their soul will go away. Like in the Gilkabanga, <laughs> who knows? Well, I seem to recall that the lizard, whose name is um, Noi Crescent, um, just sort of keeps teleporting back magically. <laughs> just think of him as, like, the worst magical girl mascot character ever. He's really trying, he's upbeat, he's very devoted to his princess, but he's not cute at all. And Yuhi is not a very sympathetic protagonist at all. He has no love for the world. As we see quite early on, he had an abusive relationship in his childhood, which makes him just kind of feel chained down, and he would love nothing better to just have the world destroyed. And so it seems kind of weird that he's been chosen as one of these beast knights to protect the princess, um, who's it's not strictly a reincarnation thing, but there's another person um, named Samidari, who is um, the princess. She has the princess inside of her, and the princess is fighting her brother. Again, it's all kind of in the future. It's a little weird. But it's not so much, that's not so much the plot of the story. The story is a bit more about Yuhi and the other Beast Knights and Samidari growing up in a way and 
yes, fighting to keep the world from being destroyed, but it's, I think the main draw for the story, for anyone who loves the story, really is the character growth in it, which is funny because the characters look pretty darn ugly to start with because <laughs> Izukami is not the world's best artist. His later works do look a bit better, but some of the early stuff looks kind of rough in the action scenes. Uh, the dog does not look very dog-like at all. <laughs> there's a horse later, and the horse does yeah, not look very horse-like. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, he can... You can grow on your wear. All right, I guess. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> I mean, if you can't draw underwear, I, I think you have larger problems at hand. <laughs> but let's see. I've read the entire series. It's been a little bit of a while since I last checked in on it. And April, you said you've read a lot of it. I don't remember how far yours. I've read out. exactly half, so I just got through. Oh, okay. Oh, there's. I've read. A good chunk of it, so. Oh my goodness, you guys have so much ahead of you. Since Corey's only read, um, I think the equivalent of the first Omnibus. Yeah, just a little bit more than that first Omnibus, I think. So, oh, this is so hard for me to talk about then about spoiling it, since (laughs) I feel like um, Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer is very uneven in many ways in terms of the themes and in some ways the pacing. I feel like it was kind of up and down eventually just starting to go more up and up towards the end. I feel like that's when it reaches its real crescendo and you really feel everything come together. So I wonder how you guys are enjoying it now that you guys are in what I definitely think are the weaker parts of the story. I definitely think that it's a little uneven. I think the first um, Omnibus is better than I expected just because there's that sort of um, shocking thing at the end that I wasn't really expecting. But it definitely (laughs) feels – it definitely feels – uneven and I can't figure out even like five volumes in um, exactly where it's trying to go. It just seems like there's a lot of folks and a lot of things in the air and it seems like it could either end really well or really poorly. Um, I think the one thing I would have to disagree with you, Helen, um, as far as the series is I thought the main protagonist actually kind of liked him. He just seemed like he didn't really care um, and once you get a little bit of his backstory, you can kind of see why. Um, so it's kind of nice to see him sort of find something that he cares about. I thought that was interesting about him. I, I prefer that over uh, just some random high school kid that gets like a superpower. And now I have a bunch of friends and I'm going to save the world. I mean, I guess in some ways it's, this is still the same, but I sort of liked his disposition a little bit more. So, yeah, I definitely think it's understandable why you he is so uncaring about the world to start with since we've seen that the world really has dealt him kind of a rough hand since when he was growing up his parents both went out of his life kind of unexpectedly so he was living with his grandfather and once he moves out um i think to go to college some of some of his other family members moved in with his grandfather and he sees how his grandfather is just so much more loving and caring and kind towards them and the way that he never was towards him so that really is giving you he a lot of mixed feelings I do think it's all entirely understandable. I just didn't relate to it. It's just he handles the situation a lot differently than I would. Mm-mm. Since no matter how bad life gets, I very rarely think, yeah, I just kind of want a giant hammer to smash the world and destroy everything. <laughs> Even you've never thought that specifically before? <laughs> I mean, there's certain folks I would like to jump in a lake, but not destroy the entire world. <laughs> I think there is, like, this light of optimism within Amamiya that's just buried between, or behind uh, his upbringing with his grandfather that was like, every human is terrible, do not trust anybody. Uh, Friends, or enemies stab you in the stomach, friends stab you in the back. 
Um, People are just going to let you down regardless. Yeah, but now that he's uh, he's met this girl, uh, Samigare, and he's starting to form relationships with these other knights, I assume he continues to form relationships with the rest of the knights. I've only met one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's about 12 total, and they all will appear in one form or another before the end of the story. So once he starts to get all of these relationships going, he can maybe realize that his way of thinking is not the right way. I, I think he may have like already realized that, but it's, it's going to be hard to change that within you know 14 chapters. Yeah, especially since I'd argue that the ending of the first omnibus, um, in some ways, is another way that he's been betrayed by his fellow Beast Knights. And we find later on that there's one character who seems to be delect, um, directly collaborating against um, the Beast Knights. And so we see his character arc. And it's just, all the Beast Knights are all really eccentric, too. <laughs> like, some more so than others. Like, there's one guy who you probably haven't met yet. Um, April, you probably have. But the Swordfish Knight, who's like this 500-year-old yeah. man <laughs> who trains two of the other um, knights. And it's like, right. this is really weird. This is really yeah. weird. I did like how each, like, later on, each night sort of gets their own chapter or two to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about their backstory. That was, like, super helpful because when they first started to come out, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to remember all of these people. But then they sort of get those individual chapters. Um, and their backstories don't feel super forced, at least not this, at least not at this point. I mean, some of the backstories were actually really good, and I kind of really got into them about, oh, this is really, you know, sad or whatever. Um, so that part of it, I did like that they've taken the time to flesh them out at least a little bit. Yeah, I feel like Mizukami was trying to play with expectations of the characters a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, early on, it seems like, oh, we're going to have to meet all these knights one by one, and then I think kind of shortly after the first omnibus ends, then Yuki meets, like, the remaining eight or so, I forget how many, like, all the ones he hasn't met yet, they just kind of all show up at once. I think some of the characters, like, there's one point where they're like, yeah, we need to find more people, and then they see two people riding by on a bike, and they both have their, like, piece of animal, yeah. and they're just like, what? I'm like, like, yeah, they literally, like, they literally ride by on a bicycle. I'm like, really? This can't, this can't really be happening. And the funny thing about it is I had read I read the first volume of Nozaki, too, which I know we're going to talk about, but they have that chapter in Nozaki. (laughs) (laughs) And I read both of those today. I'm like, what? So weird. And one of the things about the Beast Knights is that um, the animals are invisible to everyone except the other Beast Knights, which is partially how they figure it out. And also, again, like I said, how Noi would be kind of a bad magical girl animal because he's this very uncute lizard. Like, none of these animals are really cute. Like, we have a lizard. We have a dog, which does not look very dog-like. Again, <laughs> Mizukami's not good at drawing. We've got a horse. It's also pretty bad. And then we have, like, a snake, an owl, a tortoise, swordfish, praying mantis, and a rooster. How does a swordfish even work? <laughs> it's really it's right. floating in the air. <laughs> oh, it's like Pokemon. <laughs> but, yeah, so I feel like... And all the characters come from fairly normal backgrounds, like... The only one I can think of who comes from kind of a weird one is the Crow Knight, who is already, like, really good at martial arts. Like, I think he's already better than even the rest of them. I feel like he's the only one with a really weird background. Though. Everyone else is kind of like, yeah, I'm just kind of a normal person. And then, like, this snake showed up in my bedroom. And I, you know? <laughs> and then the Snake Knight just uses her snake to take the photos when she does cosplay selfies, which is great. <laughs> oh, and they all get summoned to this other world every now and then. You go know, hold conferences with each other, and she totally shows up in cosplay once. And I'm like, ah, I feel you. You know, oh, you're just chilling, and you're 
room. And then it's one way where I feel like the story is just like, I want to do something a bit different with the idea of people being chosen to save the world. And it goes about it a little subtly. I know this doesn't sound subtle, but in the context of the story, it kind of does. It's not being overly, we're going to do this differently. It just all fits in and flows along. It's like their dream world, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the same one, because there's a couple different iterations of the dream world, kind of. Well, you know, so far, uh, I don't really know why this hammer wants to destroy the Earth. (laughs) Uh, well, it has to do with the princess and her brother um, from the future. I remember that much. It just seems like a really terrifying thing to look up in the sky and see. Yeah. Oh, and this is also something that only the Beast Knights can see. They're the only ones who can see this giant hammer looming over the Earth. Yeah, they said it. They said that it that you can only see it if it's pointed out to you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we'll just roll with that. <laughs> Yeah, it's very strange. And I feel like all of that probably, there's probably a larger theme about cognition in there as well, about these people being kind of eccentric enough to see this, and to, but still care enough to want to see it and want to change the world. I feel like there's probably a larger theme about that, but I need to reread the story kind of carefully to speak really deeply on that. Also, I've just been watching a lot of Persona 5 videos, which is, like, all about cognition, so it came to mind. <laughs> I'll admit it, I am definitely influenced by things other than manga that I consume in my life. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> you can't tell people on this podcast that. <laughs> we only read manga in our life. <laughs> we don't even work. <laughs> uh, I have no idea what the library is going to say to me about all the books I've checked out from them, then, which aren't manga. Mm. Those are just manga without pictures. <laughs> no, those are light novels, Corey. You're right. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, the the series feels, it kind of, parts of it kind of remind me of, like, Parasite. I guess maybe because of how random the little creature showed up, and it kind of reminded me of Parasite a little bit. And then, like, I get, like, a weird um, Evangelion vibe from the golem things and how they just like randomly show up and they're really ugly and kind of freaky it kind of reminds me of that yeah especially since the golems are numbered like later on they start Mm -hmm. figuring out the pattern and so like when they see one that's like farther along in the pattern than they should be they're like wait what the heck we missed one what happened Mm -hmm. these are also some of the um, machinations of um, the princess's brother from the future Um, he's sending these golems to try and kill the knight so that they can succeed and smashing the hammer once again I got the impression that they had smashed in the future and the princess and the knights keep jumping farther back in time to try and actually prevent it, which is mm. very nihilistic, so... This manga's weird. It's yeah. definitely weird. <laughs> also, the um, like the human characters all have pretty normal names, but the animals all have, like, really bizarre names. Oh, I just gave up, like, trying to remember those. I'm like, okay, this is the snake and this is the swordfish, but I just cannot remember their names at all. Basically, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's definitely something different. I feel like when it was coming out, um, the social media person for Seventies really liked this series, and that yeah, was a lot of the reason. Yeah. That, yeah, 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 that was a lot of the reason that I picked it up. Honestly, is because um, he seemed like he was really a big fan. So um, it's definitely a little bit different. Yeah, actually, the reason why I picked it back up again was that I started reading a different manga on Country World called Spirit Circle, mm-hmm. and I was enjoying that, and I didn't realize it's by the same author, um, Mizukami. Oh. And I think ANN had done a review on one of the volumes, and when I looked in the comments, there were a whole bunch of people saying, you know, I really like this, and I really like 
the biscuit hammers, I was like, okay, I actually have a reference point now. People who like this do also like um, biscuit hammers. So I went back and kept going. And Spirit Circle, um, also coming out from Seven Seas in just a few days after we record this podcast, is much more consistent tonally, I feel like. But I feel like Lucifer and the Big and the Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer has even more emotional highs. Like this manga has peaks and valleys. Like the lows are really kind of bad, but the highs are just such great emotional moments. Well, Spirit Circle is a little more consistent. So I can tell you guys that the artist, you know, the mangaka, his writing does improve and his art does improve some over the years. <laughs> so horse will start to look like a horse. <laughs> well, he just didn't put any horses in Spirit Circle, I think. I think he loved that. Well, at least, like, the the uh, proportions of the people seem fine. Um, they're not, like, maybe... If you stare at some of the fight scenes too long, they look a little weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. He's actually done quite a few series in Japan, um, but these are the only two to come out in English. Like, I saw an image once where he's got a bit of a multiverse going on, so... These two series do kind of loosely connect to a couple of others. It's not really present in Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer at all. It just shows up at the very briefest bit at the end of Spirit Circle, but it's made me more interested in some of his other works. But these are the only two licensed right now. He did a Trigun manga. Well, I don't care about Trigun, so... Oh, no! (laughs) Okay, I've gotten my hot take in for the episode. We're good. (laughs) Don't add her, everybody! (laughs) I mean, they can. I'm just going to be like, I don't care. I think Dana's so I, Well, she knows where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess in closing, since both you two are still experiencing the story, is there anything you guys are really hoping to get out of the story later on? Anything you're sort of hoping to look forward to, I guess? Reasons behind everything that's happening. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> Reasons happen. Um, I think that I'm afraid that the hammer thing is something really bad. Or that, like, it's not going to be what they expect, and it's going to be really, really bad. So, I can't say I'm looking forward to that, but I kind of want to see what it is. I mean, we do know it's a hammer that can destroy the world. So. <laughs> I mean, that, I guess it's inherently bad, depending on how you look at it. But I just, I just, I don't know. I'm afraid, like, it's going to fall apart somehow, or there's going to be something that they didn't expect, or I, I don't know. I just, that's, that's, I think, what's got me hanging on till the end is, is what is this exactly? So, and hoping that it becomes um, all of these random weird things become kind of cohesive by the end. I felt like the series was pretty cohesive by the end, and there are some things that ha- happened surrounding the hammer, mm. which I think you're going to be interested in. Um, probably not in the way you're thinking of, though, because they're kind of weird. But it, by that point, you're just like, yeah, I'm here for this weirdness. I am down with the story. Yeah, basically, what's grabbing me so far is like everything's kind of weird and intriguing on a very base level, but um, as I move on, I would want to dig deeper and deeper on what makes everything so weird and intriguing. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe at some point we'll, we can do a podcast where we all follow up on all the things we've only read partially and mm. just see how everybody enjoys stuff at the end. Probably a good idea. Yeah, that would be. Maybe episode 10. <laughs> <laughs> so, just for the Biscuit Hammer. Go read it, folks. I do prefer Spirit Circle a bit more over this one. But this ends up being a really great manga. Just the characters, everything ends up clicking by the end. The characters grow, their motivations mature, and it just has some great wackiness in there, too. Okay, guys. And with that, um, I am done talking about Loose from Biscuit Hammer. I think we are all talked out about it. So after the break, we will be back with Nozaki-kun. <laughs> No, 
And the bike riding scene in particular is Nozaki saying, oh, I want the characters to ride together on a motorcycle, on a, not a motorcycle, just a bicycle. But in Japan, you know, it's legal for someone to ride behind them on a motorcycle. We have to follow these rules. So what if they have a two-person bicycle? You know, what if she's riding the bicycle and he's pushing her? Or what if she's walking alongside of him? <laughs> And then I remember the anime, since I've seen the anime more recently, there's, like, various scenes where he and Sakura are trying to make the two-person bicycle work, and they're both like, this is not romantic at all. <laughs> what if I just pedal and you sit? No, I feel too guilty! <laughs> or when they both forgot their umbrella, and then they have to, like, run around with Nozaki's coat over his head, and Chiyo's under her head. Under his head. <laughs> And it's funny because a lot of times she was like, oh, I know how this is going to work, you know, he's going to share his umbrella with me. And then I'm like, oh, we both forgot the umbrellas. Let's try something else. (laughs) And I think, and this actually is not a shoujo manga. This is actually shown in manga. But it's so funny since the series just lampoons very lovingly a lot of shoujo jokes. Like the only reoccurring shoujo joke I haven't seen here is I have not seen any instances of the shoujo stairs, which is a term one of my friends has for all those times that people in shoujo manga fall downstairs. Okay. Uh, I didn't yeah. know where you were going with that. <laughs> Sorry, the shoujo stairs is what friend calls them. I thought you meant S-E-A-R-E. No. I realize that now. <laughs> I don't know, because Chio will glare at Nozaku-kun when he doesn't do something. Like, I, I don't know, there's one time where she's glaring at him because he knocked his box of chocolates to the floor, and she's like, pick them up, and he starts eating them. He's like, she's so sadistic. <laughs> This is a weird manga. It's a really weird comedy. I feel like in some ways it's the most realistic school comedy because teenagers are just weird. <laughs> teenagers are just weird. Yep. <laughs> like, there's a lot of stuff done with some of the characters in the drama club, and I could just see a lot of that could have happened in the tech club in my high school, you know, chasing people down, dragging people into practice, you know, occasionally abusing people with props, being like, you are not behaving. I totally could have seen that happening in my high school tech club. <laughs> uh, I'm, like, browsing through the images that I've taken of the docu-town. Oh, no. <laughs> then you just want to start reading all over again. Yes. And now I'm also just giggling at them, but there's one where Kashima has a sore throat, so she's writing uh, the writing on a p- pack of paper instead. So Mikarin shows up, and he's like, all right, well, I'll just read for you. So she's doing this ridiculous, uh, you know, wooing thing of some girl. So Mikarin gets super embarrassed at saying any of that. So, uh... He's just like, please don't make me do this anymore. Well, I remember there's another part of that skit where um, the two of them come across another female friend, Seo, and apparently Kashima slept over at Seo's house the other day. And, um, or um, Seo slept over at her ass, I forget which, but something along the lines of one of the girls off their bra at the other place. And so Kashima writes down, has Nikarin read, oh, like the black one with the polka dots and the uh, lace, right? <laughs> just stuff like that. <laughs> at which point some side characters are like, they're all so oblivious. They really don't actually realize what they're doing, do they here? No. Nope. Uh, well, uh, do you all have any favorites, uh, dicks in this manga? My favorite reoccurring gag is Nozaki-kun in the game play a video game, because they've done this three times now, <laughs> and it's better and better each time. <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite one just yet. It's it's almost like a hard series to talk about because it's so funny. Like, I don't, I just, I, it makes me want to, like, go out and get the rest of the volumes, because I had, like, I really had, like, no idea that it was that funny. Even hearing um, you all talk about some of the other skits, it's funny, and I don't even have the book in front of me, so. Like, you've been editing all my reviews, you've seen <laughs> I know, it. <laughs> Yeah, but for, like, the video game ones, it's great, because in the anime, we saw one instance where it's Nozaki and a couple of the guys, and they're playing a dating game, and by the end, they're just so worked up with their passion for this 
male character friend that they make an entire doujinshi for the male side character friend and gets his own love interest. Tomoda. And then, and then there's one um, where it's Nozaki, Mikorin, and Hiori who is um, uh, in the drama club and they're all playing a girls otome dating <laughs> game. And they're just all freaked out by how all the guys are like secretly evil and possessive <laughs> and just disgusting underneath. I'm just all very freaked out by this. And so like the next day at school, they're like jumping whenever they see anybody. <laughs> Of course, most of this is under the guise of Shifojo manga research, because it's like, if we play this, then maybe we'll know what real love is like. And then what girls think. Or then they play one, I think it's Mikurin, Nozaki, and Chio, and they're playing like a text-based mystery murder mystery game. And Nozaki has his habit where he keeps trying to name like the characters in the video games after his own characters in the story, so he gives like the main character like the female heroine's name from his story, but instead we're like, He's a 50-year-old man who smokes, and he's like, ah, she's very weird. <laughs> and she and you kind of like, no, we're just wrong here. <laughs> wow. And there's a lot of good-natured gender-bending in the story, to an extent. Like, it's very obvious to a lot of characters that Mikorin, um, Mikoshiba, who's this um, guy, is actually the basis for the heroine in Nozaki's manga. Yep. So he'll say all these really sweet things to the girls, you know, like, oh, my little lamb, I might eat you up. But then he just starts blushing immediately and regrets it. And I always got the impression that the girls in their class know about, know how this is going to go and egg him on to see what he'll say. <laughs> and so Nozaki has turned this into the blushing, a little tsundere heroine of his manga. And then... I know he turns one girl, Seo, into, like, a rival guy or something, who's just completely blunt and tactless. And I always got the impression Kashima might be part of the basis for Suzuki, maybe. And Kashima is this girl who always plays, like, the prince in the drama club plays because she is tall and she's a good actor. But she also just flirts shamelessly with the other girls. And it, everyone's just like, oh, she's like a real sh- shoujo prince. And everyone is just cool with this. Because everybody knows how this is going to end. It's all going to end with somebody laughing. And at least a couple <laughs> times she's worn the slacks and of the skirt to school. Mm-hmm. But she is the king it, of this manga. <laughs> and it's never done meanly. Like, I could see some folks being worried, like, oh, are they just going to make jokes, you know, about the characters being feminine or masculine? But no, it's all just played for laughs, like... When Hiori met um, Kashima, the joke is that he thought he she was a guy, even though she's clearly walking around in a skirt the entire time and about to go into the girls' bathroom. The joke is that he was just so caught up in it, he couldn't even realize what was in front of his face. Let's see, Corey, have you also seen the anime? Since April, you said you'd seen a couple episodes, at least. Yeah, not too many. Yep, I watched all the anime. It was hilarious. Yeah, the anime is also really great, so if you wanted to, like, try it out, since it might be a little easier to find the anime streaming somewhere than to pick up the volume, you should. It's got some adorable opening and ending themes. The bicycle gags, I think, work even better. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> well, because then you get the full effect of Chio just sitting there blankly being like, this tandem bicycle thing is not working. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't romantic at all, Nozaki Ken. <laughs> yeah, and the manga only got licensed after the anime came out, which is great since I'd been hoping for a while I was familiar with that they would really get licensed. So I was like, everyone, you are going to love this. It's great. Yeah. And I know that Young Press got it, but I know Vertical also wanted it at one point. So yeah. it's always good to see when manga's like, multiple people want it, you know? We appreciate good manga. Uh, so the anime came out in 2014, and then this manga finally got released in November of 2015. The latest volume was released two months ago. And then the uh, the ninth, that was volume eight. Then the ninth volume in Japan was released last month. So 
but we're basically current with the Japanese release now. Yep. Oh, April, have you come to the Tanukis yet? Um. You would remember probably. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, you would remember. <laughs> yeah, we, we meet some of Nozaki's co-workers in a sense, like his editor, his former editor, another manga, and there's a lot of running jokes about a, a certain editor making a certain manga draw Tanukis into all their work. <laughs> Okay, I think I've seen the beginnings of that, but I also think it's super hilarious that at least the editor that I saw in the first volume does not like him, and he totally, like, misinterprets everything that he says. I just thought that was totally hilarious. He's like, he wants me to become the best shoujo, you know, manga car or whatever, and they're like, no, that's not what it is. Like, he doesn't like you. (laughs) He just never seems to pick up on that. And part of the joke is that Nozaki hated his last editor, Mayano, so much. Um, and basically everyone does. And he's like, Ken actually doesn't flake on me and all of that. It's great. <laughs> Although I know Nozaki worries Ken sometimes. Like there's a gag in one of the latest volumes where Nozaki has actually figured out that the deadline they give them isn't the real deadline. There's a couple extra days built. So Ken's like, wait, how did you figure out the real deadline? <laughs> like, I think when Ken was first introduced, uh, Nozaki was frantically cleaning his entire apartment, and yes. Kyo's like, what's happening? Is <laughs> yeah. your parents coming over? It's like, no, my editor. I think maybe he, she asked about a girlfriend, and he says, he says, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this if my girlfriend was coming over. And she says, oh, your editor would be more important than your girlfriend? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, the one sad thing I have about the anime is that we haven't gotten a second season, which means it's a couple more characters that didn't get introduced. Like, Nozaki has a younger brother who is just, like, this utterly lethargic character who's also super great at judo, and there's some running gags about him also being really great at art. <laughs> and, like, so he, he's, like, he keeps trying to illustrate to, like, his teammates, you know, how to do judo moves, but they're not paying attention, so he starts drawing increasingly sexier girls doing the judo move, and then one guy starts putting them together on a blog, and it's just this <laughs> rampantly spiraling out of control plotline, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> also, some of the fans have decided that since you can ship basically all the other characters together one way or another, that Mikrin's the odd duck out, so clearly we need to ship him with Nozaki's younger brother, which is just kind of funny from a fan perspective. <laughs> They're like, well, the two kind of get together, get along. Yeah. Oh my god, and then there's also the chapter where the characters are trying to figure out how smartphones work. <laughs> oh, I vaguely remember this. And it was hilarious. Basically, all of the chapters in Nozaki Kun are good. True. And the chapters feel like good lengths, too. Like, there's multiple skits in the chapters, but I feel like they usually connect to each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. It, it's a really funny series. Yeah. Or, I know they've done a couple of Ouija boards. Even if, like, one of those four coma is not that funny, then the next one will probably be hilarious. Yeah, that's what I've <laughs> noticed, too. Yeah, but even if you get one that's kind of a lull, it usually ties into the next few ones. So, like, yeah. you can hit three or four, and probably at least half of them are going to be at least somewhat funny. Mm-hmm. So, April, we convinced you to go out and pick up the rest of Nozaki Kun as fast as you can. Yeah, I think <laughs> this, and then you all convinced me about Fruits Baskets a few episodes back, but yeah, this is, like, really very funny. <laughs> so, it's it's even, like, hard for me to talk about without just, like, cracking up, and I've only read one volume, so. <laughs> I also don't feel like the story is too repetitive. Like, I did mention that they've used the video game gag a couple times, but it works each time, which is impressive, since... This is like an entirely comedy-based story. There's no overarching plotline to this. We don't know if the characters will ever graduate high school or anything like that. But yet it still keeps feeling different and fresh, which must be really hard to pull off. And I appreciate it. Yeah. I guess it's a webcomic. Um, I'm not sure how they publish it. 
Like, mm-hmm. if it's daily, like, dumbing a video or something, or if it's... No, it's published in chapters. Mm-hmm. It's published in monthly chapters, okay. I think. Yeah, since, oh, it's a weirder magazine. I think it might be a digital-only magazine at this point. Hmm. But I haven't looked into it because I can't read the Japanese version, so there's no point. So, yeah. um, I wonder if it was, it was like that because, like, writing one funny chapter a day seems much more doable than writing like ten funny pages per month or whatever. I'm pretty sure it's monthly though, since I mean, gosh, I barely follow any weekly manga anymore, and the pacing to this one and the length of the chapters feel monthly to me. And I don't think Japan is really big on actually doing daily. For coma the way you would with um, web comics mm-hmm. in the U.S. I don't think that's something that ever really caught on over there. Sure Their history think. of comics is just different from ours, which and I feel like our daily web comics are more based off of a lot of people's first experience of comics was probably newspaper serialization. Yeah. Oh my God, do they have comics in the newspapers in Japan? I'm gonna have to look this up in the podcast is done. Uh, well, while you, I would totally read Nozaki Kun every day in the newspaper. <laughs> I totally would. Oh, you're eating breakfast before you go to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, well, should we close this thing out? Do we have any closing thoughts on Nozaki Go? Um, if you're new to it like me, it's very funny. And it takes a lot for me to laugh at manga, and this is very funny. <laughs> so that's that's my closing thought. If you've read eight volumes like Helen and me, it's still funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely worth an investment of your time. You will just enjoy it. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, uh, let's close this episode out. Where can we find both of you online, internet, places? Ellen? Uh, let's see. You can find me on Twitter, and you can at me for my hot takes, at Wandering Dreamer. Still doing some posts over on both um, the OASG and my own blog, Narrative Investigations, and still co-hosting the It's Not My Fault, the OASG podcast is not popular on a bi-weekly, I guess you'd say, basis with um, my co-host Justin well we have even more hot takes most of the hot takes are mine I'll admit <laughs> I don't know uh, the last episode I listened to you, Justin had a lot of hot takes on like Death Note and whatever else it was oh my god we podcasted for like 40 minutes on mostly that and I was like Justin <laughs> how do you have so many feelings on this movie I wanted to interject over several moments and be like wait <laughs> it was worse than that oh no <laughs> anyway hey, April where can you find anything <laughs> You can find me um, on Twitter at Mondiorin, and I am in the background on the OASG um, editing some of Helen's posts and a couple of other things. So I'm kind of um, always floating around the internet like normal. You can find me on Twitter at PassionateK. Uh, I also do a sports anime podcast called the Taiku Podcast, D-A-I-I-K-U. And that is also where you can find this podcast on TaikuPodcast.com. Uh, that's the end of the show. We'll see everybody next time, then. Bye. Bye. I just want to talk about manga, guys. I just want to tell people about all the great manga they're missing out on.